In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis from all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the Gold Dome. Today we're joined by AJC Washington correspondent Tamar Hallerman. How's it going, Tamar? Good, and I'm here in person now, just not you know not a voice on the other side of the telephone line like usual. Exactly, and Very you know exciting. we're hoping this is this is going to be more of a trend. You're going to come down here like mm-hmm. every other week, maybe. Mm, sure, 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 sure. sure, sure. <laughs> So today we have uh, last week. There was a pretty big development in that we got our first round of financial reports from the candidates. Of course, these are not going to tell us how much voting support they have. A lot can change between now and next November, including many more candidates are expected to get in the races. But they do provide you an early snapshot, an early test of how these guys are raising money, who their donors are, and what that means. Exactly. And just to be clear, we're talking about the the federal races for for House and Senate. And this is really the first time that we've seen data from from 2019. So so this is from January, February, March. And already in a lot of these contests, particularly the 6th and 7th congressional districts in in North Atlanta suburbs, we're seeing a ton of candidates jumping in early. So whereas in a normal year, (laughs) back before Donald Trump was president, back before David Perdue was in the Senate, we wouldn't have seen a ton of action in an odd-numbered year. But because there's so much attention, so much money that's likely going to come into these races, a ton of candidates have already jumped in. Exactly. Um, and those races, as you said, are usually slower forming. And we're really looking at three different races. We're looking at 6th six, six District, which is um, East Cobb to North DeKalb, 7th District, which is Gwinnett and parts of Gwinnett and Forsyth, and the U.S. Senate race. And again, it's an incomplete snapshot because in the 7th, for instance, we don't have any Republican contenders yet. And in the Senate race, the only Democratic contender, high-profile Democratic contender to file paperwork for that race was Teresa Tomlinson, the former mayor of Columbus, who didn't file until after the deadline. So we don't know how much she's even started raising yet. But we do have David Perdue's numbers. Let's start there. Yeah, exactly. And and he is already started out pretty strong going into the year. I believe he had something like a million dollars. It's sitting in his bank account just kind of waiting. Um, and then you, you went through the documents the other day while I was up in the air, um, not on the internet. Um, and tell me what you found. He did yeah. pretty well. Yeah, he raised about $2, $2 million over that first quarter, which was from January to end of March. And he has about three-ish million dollars in the bank. So not a bad start um, for, for, for Senator Perdue. It's going to be a ridiculously expensive race. Um, uh, Teresa Tomlinson says that she alone will have to raise $22 million, which is about which is a little bit less than Stacey Abrams raised in the 2018 gubernatorial campaign with all that national attention. So that's a tremendous amount of money just for one for one candidate. 
it's going to probably be the most expensive Senate race in, in Georgia history. And think about it. I mean, David Perdue has not even formally launched his reelection campaign. Of course, being an incumbent, you can raise money all the time. It's much easier for you. You you're serve on Capitol Hill committees where you're overseeing all these industries who want to give you money anyway. Um, but, but he really hasn't even formally launched his campaign yet. He doesn't even really know who he's going to be up against yeah. if he even has a primary challenger, unlikely. Um, but what Democrat he's going to go after, if it's going to be Stacey Abrams, he's going to have to raise a ton more money. Teresa Tomlinson, I think he's hoping it'll be an easier fight. Of course, Teresa Tomlinson thinks not. Yeah. But uh, it'll take a while for this to shape up. And no matter what, it's going to get a tremendous amount of national attention because as goes Georgia in the presidential race, which is certainly going to be a battleground, probably will go the Senate too. And Senator Perdue said the same thing. Um, and he said it everywhere. And he was at, just the other day, he was at the 10th anniversary of the Tea Party rally um, beside the Capitol um, down at the State House. And he said, uh, if, we lose the, if we lose Georgia, Trump loses Georgia too, and we could lose the Senate, as in Republicans. And he, had, he, he, he laid out a doomsday scenario for Republicans of Democrats gaining control of the Senate, the House, presidency and and implementing all sorts of different changes that would uh, keep them in power for the long run. Yeah, it's going to be quite the next two years. You know, my my first race, you know, the first race I covered for the AJC was the 2016 Senate race, Johnny Isaacson, and that was a much lower profile. It was a sleeper, right? It was a total sleeper. You know, you had Jim Barksdale, who was a kind of newbie Democratic candidate, was involved in finance, never, never kind of a political player, definitely an unknown when he threw his hat into the ring. And so there wasn't a ton of national time. There wasn't any national attention in this race, if we say that. And so this already, we're, we're already seeing interest from Washington coming in, starting, you know, the oppo research is starting mm-hmm. to, to come in already. And, and it's pretty amazing. You know, it is only April of 2019. And um, as of this taping, Stacey Abrams still hadn't decided whether or not she was going to run for Senate. But Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, is is very aggressively very aggressively recruiting her, um, to, to say the least. And if she does not run, we already have Teresa Tomlinson who said that she will she will run. We also have several other candidates, many of them white women, who are kind of circling the race. Um, one of them, Sarah Riggs Amico, who was the runner-up for lieutenant governor last year. Another one is State Senator Jen Jordan. Um, who, who, who has raised her profile with her opposition to the heartbeat bill in Georgia. And another one is Michelle Nunn. Her name is out there as a potential uh, rematch because she, she, of course, lost in 2014. So, Plenty of others, too. You know, former 6th District congressional candidate John Ossoff, who raised so much money in that record-breaking special election in 2017. We've heard his race. We've heard, you know, former gubernatorial uh, nominee Jason Carter's name in the mix, although that one seems a little bit more yeah. unlikely. But Jen Jordan, you know, I was covering her up in D.C., either last week or two weeks ago, she was testifying against a federal 20-week abortion ban and, you know, was invited by Senator Feinstein. And and clearly her profile is just soaring right now. And I think, um, you know, it'll be, especially if Abrams passes on this race, it's going to be a wide open field. And meanwhile, 6th and 7th districts, the 6th district is pretty much formed, we think. There could be another Republican candidate getting in, but it's Lucy McBath, who did a, who had a pretty good fundraising quarter as well, against Karen ha- on the Democratic side, and then Karen Handel and Brandon Beach. Karen Handel, of course, used to represent the district for about a year and a half, and Brandon Beach is a state senator. Um, they both have the same, relatively the same political bases up in North Fulton County. Both of them even served in the same job as North Fulton County CEO, years apart from each other. But still, 
And Karen Handel came out the gates pretty hot, right? She had a pretty good fundraising. You know, we we were commenting how unusual the timing of her announcement was because it was a week before the fundraising deadline. Normally, when you're trying to come in, you want to be able to start early in the quarter so you can raise a ton of money, come out in that first quarter showing, look, I I raised hundreds of thousands of dollars. Look at how much support I have. So we thought, hmm, that's weird. But then looking at her report, she did pretty darn well, about $250,000, if I remember. That's less than the $325,000 her campaign. Payne said she raised. I'm still trying to add that up to, to get it to that number, but still pretty darn strong considering she was only in the race for a week. And she's very much trying to position herself as, you know, she, she's almost running as if she's the incumbent. She already started out by by rolling out a list of pretty impressive endorsements. And Washington helped too, right? Exactly. Most of the congressional <clears throat> delegation, Kevin McCarthy, the current leader of the House Republican Caucus, um, and, and a lot of those people donated to her in her campaign as well. Another donor, interesting, kind of looking through her filings, was David Ralston. Yeah, House Speaker David Ralston gave her money. It's actually, I don't know why it was reported in this report, because it was dated like uh, early April, which is beyond the deadline. Um, but he gave $1,000 to her as a show of support. Um, that could be a liability to some Republicans who are mad about his use of the legislative leave privilege. That could come up uh, in campaign rhetoric. We'll see. Brandon Beach, on the other hand, um, he he's allowed to raise there, there are state prohibitions. You can't raise money during the legislative session if you're running for a state office. But there's no such ban if you're running for a federal office. So even though he was still in the legislative session, he still raised money. He says he wasn't able to raise as much money as he wanted to because he still had to vote. And he's the Senate Transportation Committee chair. But he held two fundraisers. Um, they raised about 120,000 ish dollars. Um, and some of the big names on his fundraising list include Rick Jackson, who is a big, huge mega donor here in the state of Georgia, and Bernie Marcus, who's a big, huge mega donor in the around the nation for Republican causes. He's one of um, Donald Trump and, and the Republican Party's biggest mega donor backers. So both of them throwing their lots behind um, Brandon Beach. Exactly. And then on the Democratic side, we have we have our new incumbent, Lucy McBath, the Democrat who I think kind of surprisingly knocked McBath or knocked uh, Karen Handel off of her perch in, in November. And her team has known from day one that she was going to be a top target for Republicans going into 2020. And she's clearly fundraising that way. She pulled in something like four hundred twenty thousand dollars, a really impressive sum, especially again, early part of 2019. We are not even in the yeah. election year. So they they know that they have to hustle in order to keep her in the mix. Um, a lot of donations from Act Blue, which is an online fundraising platform that allow, allows small dollar donors from all around the country to donate. That was a huge help to her and Democrat Carolyn Bordeaux in the neighboring 7th district last year. Republicans, after they got shellacked in the midterms, were complaining bitterly to the RNC that they didn't have a similar platform so that they could easily fundraise small dollar donors around the country. And and I, you know, the talk was that there was going to be a platform like that that would emerge. But at least it, it wasn't clear in Handel's report or in, in um, David Perdue's that that money, that small dollar money was starting to come Yeah, in. let's talk about that because ActBlue has helped Democratic uh, candidates raise more than $3 billion since it started, which is a tr- oh, mind-boggling amount of money. And we crunched the numbers just to see how many small dollar donations have come into Georgia candidates so far. And small dollar, by the way, we, we should we should specify is less than two hundred dollars, unitemized. Those are contributions. If you give fifty or hundred, if you give anything less than two hundred, you don't have to put your name. Uh, your name doesn't become public as a donor. If you put anything over two hundred dollars, your name is out there as a donor. And also, some people either don't want their names out there or just don't have the cash to give um, that much money. So we crunched the numbers, 
And about one-fifth, about 20 percent of all the Democratic donations coming into these these candidates in these very competitive districts, 6th and 7th, um, have been small-dollar donations. And last cycle is even higher. It was closer to a third. The Republican side, we're talking 4 or 5 percent of small-dollar donations. And things are going to shift as we get closer to the election, of course. You're, you're seeing a ton of small-dollar donors with a lot of these presidential races, including with Donald Trump, including, you know, Pete Buttigieg, um, Bernie Sanders, of course. Bernie Sanders, three-quarters of his donors are small-dollar. And things will change, especially once we get closer to Election Day, when people really do start tuning into these congressional races. Um, you saw it with Stacey Abrams running for governor, John Ossoff, back in 2017. As people start plugging in, probably closer to fall of 2020, you're going to see the that, that those small dollar donations from around the country increase. But Democrats have traditionally had the edge over this, and it's and it is. It's a big, um, and Republicans tend to get more money from special interest groups, from political action committees. Big donors. Big donors too, and we're seeing that too in the numbers. Um, uh, with Senator Perdue. Um, with with Karen Handel, they're getting a lot of money from political action committees. And Democrats do have some ground to make up, right? Because this kind of new brand of Democrat that we've seen since the rise of Bernie Sanders in 2016, a lot of them have chosen to forego corporate PAC money, which traditionally is a huge source of campaign funds for a lot of people. So if you can't rely on that, you got to make it up somewhere. And so people have really emphasized those small dollar donations. And now that we're talking about the president race, presidential race, we had yet another visitor. We're not South Carolina. We, have, we don't have them every, every day. But uh, when we do have a presidential visitor, the AJC covers them um, because just, just you know, a cycle ago or two cycles ago, we barely had any visitors. And now because of the tightness of last year's election and because of the timing of the primary, there's a lot of interest in Georgia. Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey um, just came for a two, day, two days in Georgia. His first day, he was over at Pascal's restaurant near, near downtown Atlanta um, to outline his voting rights proposal. Uh, among the things he would do was he would make it easier for people to register. He would end felony disenfranchisement, which means if you're a former felon, you would be allowed to vote again. Some states allow it. Some states don't. He would make it a federal um, issue. And he would make voting uh, election day a national holiday to make it easier for people to vote. And he also talked about automatic voter registration, mm-hmm. I believe, which is something that Democrats on Capitol Hill have been talking a lot, especially um, in the more kind of progressive House. Um, he also talked a little bit about the gubernatorial race last year in yeah. Georgia. Yeah, uh, Tamara and I got a chance to sit down with him for, for an interview. And among the things he said, we, we were asking him, he was talking about, uh, he, he described this this last election in Georgia as an undemocratic process. And so we asked him, do you worry that undermines the legitimacy of, of, of Governor Kemp and, and, and faith in the democracy, especially if there's an event, if there's a natural disaster, if there's, as a leader of Georgia, where all, all the Georgians need to pull together. And he said, look, if it were me, I would call, if I'm the president, I, I would call for, for Governor Kemp to, to launch what he called a fair investigation to find out what went, what went right and what went wrong in the last year's election. Yeah, but of course that's unlikely to happen. Oh, sure. <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's just interesting how, how our election, Georgia's election, has become the touchstone for, for national figures. I mean, uh, Cory Booker came down here to talk about two things to talk about voting rights because of the last year's election and to talk about abortion rights because of the heartbeat bill. And that's something else he expanded on in our interview, saying that he would codify Roe v. Wade, the landmark 1973 Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion. He would codify that in, in federal law if he's elected. And he wanted to use Georgia as the place to kind of make that stand because, as you know, 
Georgia lawmakers passed the Re- Republican-backed heartbeat bill that would outlaw virtually they would outlaw most abortions in Georgia after six weeks, and Governor Kemp is set to sign that any moment now. Exactly. We also asked him about Stacey Abrams, who he's known for a long time. I guess they they were at Yale Law School together or they kind of overlapped during that period in their lives. So we were really curious just because, you know, not only has she been talking about running for senator governor again, but she still is in the mix potentially for president or for VP. And so we were asking him what he thought of of all of that. And he he still framed himself as a complete 100 percent supporter of of Abrams. And he thought she'd be great if she ran for president as well, which was kind of interesting. Yeah, he said she'd be great if she ran for president but she'd make an immediate impact in the U.S. Senate. Um, And that also alludes to what we've all been hearing is that Chuck Schumer, in his efforts to recruit her, has offered her some sort of high-profile leadership post, some sort of bigger role than you'd normally see a freshman senator get if she wins. Sure, but of course, I'm sure she's taking this into her, you know, into account as she figures out if she wants to run for Senate. Democrats could still be in the minority if she comes in. And then how much power do you actually really have in the minority in the Senate? That and her heart has always been set on executive office, <laughs> which also this is always our hunch that she's running for governor in 2022, not, not Senate. But, you know, by the time you hear this, things could change five times. It's so. so unusual. You know, when I was in D.C. last week, which was the last week of our session before Congress went away for two weeks, Chuck Schumer had a press conference. I asked him about Stacey Abrams. And it's very unusual for a party leader to talk about who they're trying to recruit for Senate. Because usually, you know, they want to keep their options open. They don't don't want to turn off other Democrats who are looking at the race as well. But it it just shows how much he wants Stacey Abrams and that he's he was saying, oh, she'd be great. I would love her, you know, so openly courting her. And if she decides not to, what role they'll play in will they be will they be neutral or they forcefully get behind one of the other candidates? Because uh, once she makes her decision, that field is going to form very fast. I mean, the, the the others who we mentioned earlier who have been sitting on the sidelines, they can't afford to because if they've got to raise $20 million plus, they got to start. They yes, had to start yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot of them don't have the same national or even statewide name recognition. So they, they really do need to take time. And the Purdue Network you know, is not only a big name, but it's a huge fundraising name and it's national. They're tied to the president. That's so <laughs> immensely helpful to them as they run. Um, one thing, one other thing that we did talk to Booker about, you know, we were asking him a little bit more about his Southern strategy. Basically, why why are you here? Are we going to see you a lot more? Traditionally, Democrats, is, as you mentioned, Greg, don't spend a ton of time outside of South Carolina early on. Or they swoop in and raise money in Atlanta and leave. Exactly. And he mentioned he's planning to spend quite a bit of time down here in Georgia. You know, his his mom lived in Dunwoody, he said, for something like 20 years. Mm-hmm. And he said he felt very comfortable here. He had a lot of relatives around. And, and he at least said it was an, going to be an integral part of his campaign strategy. Yeah, he hasn't built a, a campaign team here le- yet like he has in the early voting states. Uh, Michael Tyler is one of his top aides. And, and, and Michael is a he knows Atlanta like the back of his hand. DNC alum, worked for Michelle Nunn. He grew up, I believe, in College Park. And he went to school with John Austin. Off. And we're talking about a deep, deep, deep roots in, in Georgia. And when I was asking the senator that question, he kind of cut me off. He was like, listen, because I was mentioning how he's been here, you know, here and there over the last couple of years before he ran his presidential race. He, he endorsed Mayor Bottoms. He endorsed Abrams. He went down to Plains to, to meet with you know, President Carter. Uh, and he said, look, yes, I've done all that. But you're, you're talking to a guy who has very deep roots, not just with his mom, but his relatives live here. Um, he was talking about even a relative who had trouble voting. In, the, in last year's election. So um, he said uh, sooner than later is when he'll start building his apparatus here. And that's one more thing we've got to watch tomorrow. Oh, man. Going to be a busy two years. 
Well, thanks for joining us as always, and even better to have you in person. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter.